I'm Sean P. Malone in Los Angeles, California, and you're listening to the BSC edition of The Camera Report. Seamus McGarvey is one of today's most sought-after cinematographers, and for good reason. His body of work bears out his ability to light and shoot across a variety of genres, from opulent, classically beautiful costume dramas like Atonement, to the simple but sleek sci-fi look of The Avengers, to the more documented styles of movies like High Fidelity and We Need to Talk About Kevin. Coming soon for Seamus is 2014's Godzilla, but while prepping for that highly anticipated monster movie, Seamus took some time to talk to us about Anna Karenina, his third feature film collaboration with director Joe Wright, and the reason for Seamus's recent Oscar nomination. We're thrilled to be speaking to him. Seamus, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, it's lovely to be here talking with you too, Sean, on the, for the BSC. Uh, first of all, congratulations on being nominated for an Academy Award. Thanks a million. I'm I'm really over the moon. It was it was a, a big shock to me, but uh, I'm I'm overjoyed. And because I'm in pre-production on this movie at the moment, uh, the dust really hasn't settled on it. So I think whenever I go to to Los Angeles for the the ceremony, maybe that's when I'll finally start getting butterflies and, and get very excited. In other words, you've been too busy to to even let it sink in. Kind of. It, this is, you know, the pre-production period of these big CGI and movies are, are kind of intense. So I, I really have been immersed in that. In the morning time, when I'm sitting having my cup of coffee in the morning, sometimes I, I allow myself a little uh, dance around the room. <laughs> that actually leads into one question. I, I understand if you can't really talk specifics about Godzilla, the, the film uh, that you're working on now, but... Can you speak more generally about how the DP's job in pre-production has evolved with technology? You know, what are your major jobs when you're in pre-production for these big special effects movies? Essentially, it's similar, but I think that the collaboration between departments is more expansive with these big CG films. Like, for instance, uh, The Avengers, which I shot a couple of years ago. Um, I learned quickly about collaborating, for instance, with the visual effects department, and not just in terms of, you know, the, the greens or, or looking at what our effects might be or what the prev is, but specifically about cinematography itself. And I think that that is where uh, there has been a, a major tectonic plate shift, which relates directly to cinematographers. Um, and it's it's actually, you know, it seems sacrilegious and I've had lots of arguments with cinematographer friends of mine who have resisted that notion of collaboration. And I actually embrace it because, you know, increasingly the visual effects department is fusing with ours at this level of the, the, these sort of movies. And I think in order to maximize and extend our control as cinematographers, we must collaborate. It's only for the benefit of the of the look of the film, ultimately. Well, I think in the last few years, you've seen some of these effects-heavy movies look more photographic. It seems like the cinematographers are having more input into the the look of the visual effects and making sure it does look photographed. And is that kind of what you're talking about? That's precisely it. Yeah, I mean... I think that both for the Avengers and for Godzilla, which I'm about to embark on, both directors, Joss Whedon and Gareth Edwards, have a very clear idea about the veracity of the image, the immersive nature of the believability of photography that appears to be real, be it handheld, observational work. And sometimes, you know, we have seen CG that is too perfect. 
And I think that what has been lovely is that even the most expensive computer graphics can have the the aberrations, the the mess ups built into them that allows an audience to feel like they're they're witnessing something in the real. Be that uh, the use of halation or lens flare, or or maybe the instability of the camera. You know, something that I always think is a dead giveaway in terms of composites when you see a set with a green screen outside the window, daylight scene, and, and the daylight is perfectly balanced to the interior. It's always like, oh, no, that, that looks awful. So I, I've been very lucky when I've collaborated and communicated with our visual effects supervisors that they've given me little swatches of different levels of overexposure or underexposure in terms of a pre-grade on any composites that we do. And I think that that helps. We know as cinematographers how we would like to expose a particular scene, be it a, an interior of a car, poor man's process, or whether it's a, an interior green screen set. Or an exterior, like on the Avengers, for instance, all the exteriors on the Park Avenue viaduct, the symphonic finale of the film, were done on an interior set, you know, that was I lit with HMIs bounced into soft light and, and kind of mirrors bouncing everywhere, cascading hard light everywhere. When we were shooting the plates for those that were done actually on a 5D, I was able to advise the visual effects department and say, look, guys, I know I'm going to be working in a very flat, lit environment here, but I'd like to ask for some spice to the picture so uh, I can get away with a soft top light because we're in the canyons of New York, but it will add interest to the image if you can wait until there are hot spots when you shoot your plates. And I think it'll make for a more believable, beautiful image. And that's what they did. So those are the plates that they chose, things with, with burnout, and uncontrollability. So, yeah, so in other words, to avoid the appearance of perfection. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's funny that, and that, you know, the edges of a lens, you know, that, that, that nothing is sharp right to the edge, that there's, there's a blooming, you know, around a, a hot spot, all, all those things, you know, when, when there's a, a composite around somebody's head against green screen, that a, a hot backlight actually impedes upon the image, eats into it, all those things round it off, you know, and and meld the visual effects with, with the real photography. Moving to the film that you were just nominated for, Anna Karenina, director Joe Wright came to you and said, I want to turn this classic book into a filmed play. Is that what he <laughs> said to you? Well, not really. He kind of came to that decision as I was about to start working on the film because I was on the Avengers at the time and the film was going to be made in an entirely different way. We were going to shoot the film in, in a classical sense. In fact, it wasn't even going to be me shooting the film initially. Uh, the early stages of pre-production were actually carried out by Philippe Rousselot, the great French cinematographer. He had to have some surgery done on his back and he, he felt that he couldn't shoot the picture. So, uh, But by the time I came in, the decision had already been made because the budget had been slashed. In order to rescue the movie, Joe had, alongside his merry band of collaborators, Sarah Greenwood, the designer, and Katie Spencer, and, and the producers themselves, Tim Bevan, Paul Webster, Eric Fellner, decided to reimagine Tom Stoppard's script in a, a theatrical context. Oh. This was something that was a very hard sell to the studio. And, you know, Joe could probably tell you better the shenanigans that went on, the sort of miracle of timing 
that allowed this mad notion to slip under the wire and be, become green lit against all odds. But actually, I think that the, the shift in tack allowed, it allowed us to think more clearly about the film. It allowed us to think more clearly about the themes of the book. It actually allowed us to be braver and bolder in many ways, not only photographically, but in terms of design, movement, that everything became more in focus, if you like. That's a surprise to me. You would have never thought that to look at the movie the ways that you guys utilize the the theater set and the approach you took, that it was a budgetary choice. Well, it was, but, you know, in reimagining the story in this way very, very quickly, everyone's game got ramped up 100% because it did have to happen very quickly. And I must say that I wasn't involved in this process. It was entirely Joe Wright and Sarah Greenwood and the producers hothousing the idea uh, and I'm so glad that we made the film this way. You know, the thing that strikes me about the film is that it's at once theatrical and cinematic, sometimes at the same time, um, sometimes in different scenes, you know, by contrast. Can you talk about the, the plotting out of, of going in and out of those two worlds, so to speak? I mean, normally what happens when I work with Joe is that we shut ourselves away for two weeks and we really worked through the script very uh, clearly. This didn't happen because of the late volt fast of ideas. We kind of worked on it as we went through the film. But as soon as that decision was made, we did look and exchange ideas about films that would inspire us. For instance, Paul and Pressburger being a critical one. Visconti, Il Gattopardo, The Leopard, in terms of the choreographic element. Max Ophel's The Earrings of Madame Du in terms of camera movement as well. And, and I suppose just the slightly hyper-real sensibility of Paul and Pressburger and physical places being dreamscapes as well. Something that's kind of embarrassing in a, in a realist sensibility is up for grabs, really, when, when you've gone this far into the idea of artifice. So... What we talked about in, in terms of camera, which we touched on once before with the big sort of Steadicam shot we did on Atonement, was the way you can shift perspectives within a, a shot and that the camera can have a split personality, if you like, you know, that you can move from, mm -hmm. uh, from objectivity to subjectivity and vice versa. Whereas a lot of directors seem to work under the idea that the camera should always be motivated from someone's point of view. I think that the camera can be whatever the director wants it to be. And, and I think it's interesting when you fling it around like that. And it's, what's even more interesting is when you see how audiences react to that. It's like, a, it's like new words in an audience's eyes and brain. The, the camera is such a, an eloquent device that is drastically underused, uh, particularly in the great tradition of so-called realist cinema, uh, social realism in Britain, which I love, don't get me wrong. I mean, Ken Loach is one of my favorite directors, but the idea that the, the camera has to be dispassionate in some way was something that we were stepping away from in this film. Conversely, it makes me think about Citizen Kane and Greg Toland in the way that, that camera is definitely not passive. No, 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 not at all. And neither is any decision of light, of lens. It's very overt. 
And actually, that's something we should not be afraid of because it's a decisive act to do something bold with the camera. And by bold, I don't mean blithely symphonic or, or badly thought out. You know, I, I think that you can make bold statements gently. And some critics have balked at Joe's use of the theatrical conceit and have misinterpreted it as nothing but uh, a sequence of glittering baubles. And actually, that is so far from what we were all trying to achieve. I mean, sure enough, there are gilded elements there and there are beautiful sets and costumes and the use of light is theatrical and swirling. And the choreography is, it has a, got a carousel nature. But we wanted that purely to evoke excess in the, the Russian aristocracy and the crumbling of it. The converse of that, which actually exists within the movie, which is what Levin's character personifies being a kind of cipher for Tolstoy himself, a more terrestrial, grounded, rural vision. And that's why when we travel to those worlds, it was from rectitude to openness. We went to the frozen lake. We went to the Salisbury Plain, which was supposed to be the, the Russian siding scenes. You know, everything goes through a portal and the audience is pulled through out into the open, into this uh, a pastoral nirvana. That shot of him standing in the mound of hay might be one of the most memorable images I've seen on the screen this year. I mean, it really blew me away. Can you take us through shooting that morning and maybe make us feel like we were on set with you? Yes. Well, would you like to open your refrigerator, fill your face full of ice, get into the refrigerator, and then throw a bucket of water over your head. You're there. <laughs> now you're there. It was the first day of the shoot. Day one, slate one, take one. It was freezing cold. We were on Salisbury Plain. We had to get up really early in the morning to get the dawn. It was 3 a.m. Uh, to get everything ready. We'd set tracks the night before. We'd set up a crane on a platform. So we'd plotted out exactly where the sun was going to rise. So we had everything lined up. And when we arrived, it was the most beautiful foggy morning. It was just glorious, but it was so thick that we couldn't see a thing. I mean, you couldn't see in front of you. But luckily, as the sky went from black to dark blue to lighter blue, and we started then rehearsing just enough light to start the move and, and to start doing rehearsals, and we had numerous problems. The zoom was sticking. It was clicking around. The gears were freezing in the zoom because we had to do a zoom as we pulled back. The stabilized head on the crane was wobbling. The video assist was going out. Then the sun was cresting over the hill. And, you know, I have this thing in my head when I'm on a film set usually, but I, I can switch it off so that you, you, so you don't lose it. But... I, I really wanted to start shouting and screaming because <laughs> as the sun was coming up, it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. It was so beautiful. And I was like, please, I almost prayed. I lost my religion years ago. I used to be very faithful, but I, I lost my religion years ago. I think I might have said a little prayer. And then suddenly everything started working. And, uh, and we, we got the shot, and I think we got one or two takes on it. 
and it was beautiful and and also because we got this amazing distortions you know through the mist you could look directly into the sun and still you get a flare that comes around a head and and explodes into the person's face comes like this expressive moment that you cannot plan for however much i knew where the sun was going to be and that coupled with an amazing performance from donald gleason who just looked almost directly in the camera and it just i remember when we were looking at it as it was in camera and actually because we're shooting on film and because we're working with a dodgy old video assist it just appeared as a solid silhouette and I was saying to Joe listen Joe he was saying I want to see his face I want to see his face that's a beautiful performance and I said look you will when you see this film processed the sun is going to fog the film it's going to it's going to open up the shadows for that moment we'll see the face and it was just that act of faith and, and the great thing was Joe said well yes and he trusted me on it. The same thing happened with the, the Big Shot and Atonement where we didn't have any notion of what we had. The video assist broke down and I said, look, I, I know we have it. The one thing that happened when we got the rushes back was just as the cameras pulling back, a little fly landed on the filter on the front of the lens, the 85 filter. And it was just sitting there like a little dot. You could just see it sort of flying on the, on the thing and it, it just landed. And it was just because it was against fog and because it was again, it was something that we could very, very easily get rid of in the DI. But that's the only thing that, that marred our experience the next day when we watched the dailies was here was this bloody fly. That's great. What a, what a great way to, what a great foot to step on uh, for your first shot. Well, we knew that we were making a special film with that first shot. Uh, honestly, it was like a slingshot of, of poetic intent, mm -hmm. of faith. Tolstoy's book inspires it in people when you read it. Faith, poetry, you know, family, the land, landscape. All these things are kind of critical and vivid in Tolstoy's work. But th there we were imbibing in it with this first shot. And I think that it was a great a signal of intent for the rest of the picture. You know, one word I didn't hear you use, but that I thought of while you were speaking is expressionistic. The way I noticed you using diffusion when Anna and Vronsky's relationship becomes more strained. Some of those mirror shots, you know, looking at each other through reflection. Can you talk about some of those more expressionistic choices? And really, and the choice to use diffusion too, I'm curious about that. Yeah, you know, I'm a complete old tart because uh, I did use the diffusion before in Atonement. In fact, the very same pair of stockings. Christian Dior, Ten Denier, uh, a rare pair, if ever there was one, uh, courtesy of Roz Naylor, uh, my old uh, first AC, who has a stash of them somewhere in her attic. But they create wonders, and Kira absolutely loves them. So when I announced that I was thinking of using them on this, she, she broke out in a great smile. I wanted to use a diffusion throughout the film, even for the 11 moments and the exteriors, because I was slightly worried about the theatre feeling too vivid, too crisp. And I wanted to give it that sense of distance, not only distance of the era, but a distance, an intangibility. And at the same time, I wanted to give it a glow, but also a kind of a rottenness, like Joe described uh, Milan Kundera's 
description of kitsch is ripe to the point of rotten. And I think that that was a great cue for the filters because the filters, they have a, a slightly overwrought feel to them. But I think that when you got the whole film shot that way, you kind of forget about it and it becomes subconscious or you, you unconsciously read them. But uh, it just becomes part of the evocation of the time. The mirrors, Joe's kind of obsessed by reflections anyway. But I think for us, the notion of the kaleidoscope, the cubistic fracturing of things, the duplicity and the kind of two-facedness, the sort of Janus-like entity of both uh, Anna and Vronsky, you know, so not only did we use mirrors, but we used beveled mirrors and they were hugely expensive. I think in that blue hotel room, you know, we had mirrors everywhere. Not only were they a nightmare to shoot with because we were constantly getting ourselves in frame everywhere. And many times, you know, we had to cloak ourselves in, in blue silk or in mirror flecks. In, in fact, in one instance in the DI of the film, I noticed that my belly was visible in one of the mirrors just on the edge of frame with my meter hanging around my... So luckily, it was a lock-off shot and I was able to paint it out in the, in the DI suite. Thank God for that. That would have been an embarrassment. But wearing a Ramones t-shirt as well. <laughs> I don't think they had those back then. No, I think they did in Tsarist Russia. This is a very ornate picture, and the theatrical elements, the ballrooms, the stylized period sets and costumes, and it kind of makes me wonder, as a cinematographer, and you've shot these kind of movies before too, is it a struggle not to overlight these scenarios? You know, what are some things to keep in mind when you're faced with these big, ornate sets and, and things of these nature? That's the wonderful thing about Sarah Greenwood our designer is that you know there are some designers who just they, they would like a lidar scan of their sets they would like they want to see every corner of the sets but sarah designs her sets and katie spencer the art director they design their sets with such texture and consciousness of color and depth that are kind of built in like i'm not being full modest when i say that they're virtually lit when you walk onto them i mean you can feel the depth she makes my job so easy and she actually makes me look good as a cinematographer because you know what people are looking at and mistaking for cinematography are actually design elements and hopefully vice versa hopefully i help her sets with my lighting and with my camera move because I'm very interested in architectural space and what I you know Joe and I didn't want to do to these sets was make them blank and proscenium and sort of entirely symmetrical like we wanted to explore them and, and make them feel that you're traveling through space and uh, that's why we employed quite a lot of camera movement in all the theater scenes and then we had a kind of a rectitude of stasis uh, when we went into the Karenin household, for instance, to imply the, the kind of stolidity of their marriage. You know, with, with Sarah, I've never had a more collaborative relationship with the designer. She's just a joy to work with because she understands cinematography. I mean, we all do in our little merry band. Dario Marianelli, the composer, he knows about cinematography. He writes movement. I mean, if we put a camera on your shoulder or on a steady cam and you've got Dario's temporary playback 
I mean, the camera virtually levitates. I mean, it's got a, a built-in rhythm, and that's one of Joe's techniques, that he uses music to kind of create this kind of wonderful symbiosis between camera, actor, everything kind of coalesces through music. And whether it's Dario's score, which he used regularly for choreographic elements, or whether it's just Joe playing Mixmaster Airwolf on the decks, be it punk rock, daft punk, or some raga from Ravi Shankar, music is, is vital to the picture. And it goes, it extends into the sound. Joe doesn't ignore the use of sound. It's like the other pedestal of cinema that any filmmakers ignore. And Joe, for Joe, it's just as important as cinematography. And I love him for that. What does being a BSC member mean to you? I'm very, very proud. It was the proudest day of my life when I um, got a letter from them inviting me for membership. And for me, it's knowing that other cinematographers had seen and recognized some degree of like talent in my work and, and also saw stuff that they liked themselves. And also, I love the fact that so many of the greatest cinematographers whose work I've not only admired but studied, people like Jack Cardiff, Douglas Slocum, have the letters BSC after their names. And I always knew that when I saw that at the end of a movie, or at the start of a movie, as it used to be, I was in for a treat. It's been wonderful in many ways because what I can do is I can ring up any member when I want to ask for advice. If I'm stuck, if I'm in a hole, if I'm in a, in a technical situation, or if I'm querying something about how I should approach a scene, I've done it many times. I've done it with Peter Suzitsky. I've done it with Jack Cardiff. You know, I've done it with John DeBorman, John Matheson, so many of the great DPs who are part of the BSC and said, have you been in this situation before? And I love that sense of camaraderie, sharing, and also the most important thing for me is the way that we collaborate and appreciate the sharing of that knowledge to students coming up, to young cinematographers, to young filmmakers, knowledge that we have gained on the set and saying to people, this is a great industry, it's an art form, learn from us, we're willing to share. That's the most validating aspect of it for me. That's a perfect segue into my final question. What's the best advice you would give to new or younger cinematographers? I would say forget about technique and look. Just let natural light inspire you. Let art inspire you. Learn technique alongside looking with a loving, intelligent eye and thinking about story with a brain connected to that eye via a heart. And let that be your inspiration, not what the newest gimmick is. As soon as you get swamped in technique or technology, the, the, the eye can't see and what audiences want to see is a great story told with an intelligent and, and artful eye. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Seamus, for sharing your thoughts with us today. And it's been a real pleasure learning about your craft and art. We wish you the very best at the Oscars, too. Oh, thanks. No, I'm only going for the glass of champagne that they give you free as you walk in the door. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, don't forget the gift bag. I heard there's some pretty good swag in there. I'll get you a bar of soap. (laughs) Okay, thanks a lot. (laughs) Take care, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode, the second BSC edition of The Camera Report. The Camera Report is produced by Brad Malone and Sean Malone. Want to ask a question or make a comment? Like The Camera Report on Facebook and connect with us. We really want your feedback. I'm Sean P. Malone. Thanks for listening.